Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind, two crickets in a thorn tree. I'm half of your hosts, Nicholas Larimer, joined as ever by the other half of your hosts, Gabriel Krauser. Do, do, do. And today we've got a bit of a mishmash of an episode planned. We'll see where it actually takes us. Uh, but anyway, uh, Gabriel just wanted to say a couple of things first off about... Um, the elections, which he's been talking about ad nauseum, and it's going to go mad if we talk too much about it. So, Gabriel, the floor is yours. Yeah, so just for a moment, and and to remind long-standing listeners, the two crickets uh, uh, metaphor before uh, we before we were told and realized uh, that this is the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind, the side of Mars, uh, we used to say, we'll talk about anything as long as it's not South Africa because we uh, would often end up doing the show at the end of the week and we would discuss international affairs that we couldn't cover uh, quickly in the other more sort of hard-hitting news bulletin type things that we did and that Nick hosts very well on the Daily French Show. Uh, and that here we could just be a bit of expansive and and kind of think about what matters in the world around us because one of the problems with South Africa is uh, is that sometimes people can get into a bit of a gloomy isolationist vibe, and it's an interesting world out there. And if you want bad news, uh, there's lots of bad news out there in the world. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not the only place that got problems. <laughs> um, so that is what we want to do this week. Um, if you want to see more substantial, you know, tales on the election, please check out the Save the Save the Vote project that I've been heading up. Um, but basically the constitutional court, uh, did one very important thing, uh, which is it found that Nkosuzanat Lamini Zuma's proclamation was irrational. That's a direct quote. Uh, so that's in August 3rd when she said, okay, we're going to have an election on October 27th. Uh, and everyone went along with it. And the IRR was like, this is voter suppression. This is election sabotage. This is irrational. Uh, this is unconstitutional. We were a lone voice in the darkness. Uh, and we are vindicated. So I am vindicated. I am selfish. I am wrong. And other people were like, no, you can't really mean irrational. They must be exaggerating. No, nah, we meant irrational. It was irrational. Fabulous. Okay. The, so that's good because the two biggest problems were postponing the election to 2022. If IEC had gotten away with doing that, there's no reason it couldn't keep postponing it. We don't know what COVID's going to do. Basically, its argument is until everyone's vaccinated, uh, we can keep postponing. So that would have just put desperate voters who want to change uh, in a tricky position. That's unjustifiable. So we won that. We were part of the team that won that. The postponement was denied. The constitution was upheld. Flamini Zuma's proclamation was rendered null and void and irrational. So that was another good win. And then on some legal technicalities, uh, the, the Concord agreed with us. We made five arguments to the Concord in the second round which was about the candidate nominations. Can you reopen the list so the ANC can get back on there and whoever else also wants to? France Front Plus also wanted it. Um, COPE also wanted it. Lots of parties wanted it. Obviously, the ANC was the big deal because it was missing completely, basically, from 13 municipalities where it currently has a majority. It's 13 out of almost 300 in the country. Uh, so there we said to the court, look, if the IEC can do this, it can't be because your order said it can do anything that's reasonably necessary to reopen the voter registration. Uh, and many people criticized us, including some friends of the IRR, uh, but we were right, the court agreed. 
Uh, we also said the, that uh, you can't call this a postponement. One of the parts of the Municipal Electoral Act, the relevant law, says if there's a postponement, the IEC can kind of change the timetable. But there was no postponement because to have a postponement, you have to have an election, proclamation that's legitimate, and then a change of the date. And there was no legitimate proclamation in the first place. There was just a rubbish, a nonsense, whatever. Um, we also said to the court that, you, that the IEC previously said it would be impossible to go through with this, to reopen candidate nominations. They said there's yeah, no, no way, way they could ever do it. do it. And now they're saying they can do it, but they didn't give an explanation of what's changed. They just said now they're going to be Herculean, I quote, which is literally a mythological figure. So they're completely openly abandoning reason in the explanation of why they've changed their minds. We said to the court, this is no good. The court did not agree. But what the court said, which is interesting, is that it can't really rule in our favor. And that's because the matter had to be heard on the papers, which means there was no in-person, there was no oral discussion in front of the court. When it's so hasty that the court has to decide just on the papers, uh, then if one side says the other side is biased or acting badly or untrustworthy and the other side denies it, unless it's completely obviously, obviously, obviously mad, unless there's no ways, there is no ways at all uh, that it's telling the truth, uh, you've got you've to believe the side that's denying. Uh, it's just a burden of proof thing when you're dealing with a court case on the paper. So we said you can't trust these guys. They said, look, uh, we're not going to say you're wrong, uh, but we are going to say we can't really agree with you given the way this trial's happened. And the fifth thing we said was um, that the IEC, the fifth thing we said is, look, if you do this, it'll be unfree and it'll be unfair. And the court says that might also be true. So one of the scenarios to just keep on your windowsill is that the election goes forward, that we're spared the situation in those municipalities where the ANC has a majority currently, but where it missed the original deadline. We spared the eventuality if they had not been allowed to re-register their candidates. If in those 13 municipalities, people had to go vote, but there was no ANC on the box, on the ballot, there might very well have been burning and toy-toying and very dangerous, terrible things. That's not gonna happen because the ANC will be on the ballot box everywhere. But after the election, Parties can come forward to the court, the electoral court, and climb to the Supreme Court of Appeal, maybe to the Constitutional Court, and say, look, this thing was not free and not fair, so you've got to disqualify all the ANC candidates in those municipalities. That can happen. The Concord explicitly left that option open. Uh, and I'm not saying it's right, but from a kind of perspective, you can see how that's almost the best of all worlds. Um, right. It, now, the, so on all of that, the court either explicitly agreed with us or said, look, we cannot disagree with you, but we can't go forward on what you're saying. We can't say that this is unfair and unfair because the IEC's got the power to determine that. And we can't say that they're lying because the format of the trial doesn't allow us to do it. So like two full agreements and two semi-agreements and then one disagreement. And that's the last point, which is that we read the Municipal Electoral Act to say the IEC can never change a deadline that's already passed. So looking forward, if the deadline is tomorrow, for anything, for the vote, for the candidate registration, nominations, for any part of the process. It can push that deadline forward today if it's a tomorrow deadline. But once the deadline was yesterday, it can't do that. Deadlines that have passed, as time passes, like a guillotine falls uh, that stops the, I, the, the IEC from reaching back in time and changing what's already happened. Now, one way to see why that must be so, like 
imagine the election happens and then after the fact, the IEC is like, nah, we didn't like that. Let's do another one. That couldn't possibly <laughs> be free and fair or something within its powers. Or it Maybe yeah, it could go to court and say there's like been a national right. disaster. Can you give us a special allowance? But it couldn't of its own discretion just say, taxi backsies, that election was uh, was not legit. Let's do it again. Uh, and we think that the particular section blocks the IEC from doing that, that this is not a structural argument. We There could also be a structural argument, but we thought the law blocked it. The court disagreed with us. And so basically it's established the precedent where it's explicitly said the IEC can change deadlines before and after the fact. And that puts us in a scary place because because um, IEC is not super trustworthy at the moment. But anyway, um, we respect the court's thing we're gonna to have to think about it um there's no way to overturn it uh maybe and, and, and i don't want to second guess what its motivations were uh in fact i'm pretty i like i am happy to say that its motivations were not to save the anc there's just nothing mm. about the court's behavior that makes me think that um i don't think the court's on the anc side in that sense but i do think that obviously we disagree with what the court ruled yeah if if the court was on the anc side they wouldn't have uh I mean, they would have they would have moved the election louder to move the election. Exactly. Right. Right. Because um, uh, I mean, it's clear from you can check out the Daily Friends show from today, the twentieth of September. Um, we just talked a little bit about Gabor and I were on that uh, today about how the ANC is really not in a good place at the moment. They would much prefer to have the election sometime in the future when they can get their ducks in the row. Uh, some of our colleagues have been talking about how like. They've been putting up 2019 election posters this time around, That's which is amazing. not a good sign. It's not a good sign. Um, all right, you, you are you finished with 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 saving democracy? I'm totally done. That was 10 minutes, okay. and that's a lot more than I would hope for it to be. Okay, cool. All right. Well, we were kind of kind of just sort of do a mishmash of all the weird and wonderful goings on in geopolitics at the moment because. Uh, my thesis is that as American power has retreated from the world, uh, the B-level the B players, that's basically everyone who isn't China or America, is kind of stepping in to see what they can, they can take, what they can do, um, and making plans, assuming that no one from the outside is necessarily going to intervene. So, you know, over the last while, we've seen Israel bombing Iran in Syria, uh, we've seen Russia and Turkey at each other's throats. Uh, we've seen, of course... The Hold Russians. on, take a step back. How mm -hmm. does Israel bomb Iran in Syria? Uh, Iran has soldiers supporting the Syrian regime, um, mostly militias who are sort of kind of aligned with Iran or not. And also, in some cases, explicitly their, their troops are there supporting Bashar al-Assad. And uh, the Israelis have quite often, actually, I think they do it a couple of times a year at least, um, they do airstrikes on those troops. So Israel and Iran are pretty much at a war. They just haven't declared it. <laughs> and they're not, you know, invading each other's territory, but they are attacking each other um, quite explicitly. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's a weird, okay, no, it's I a hear weird you. kind I, of way I that don't modern war No, works, there's right? a lot of proxy. There's a lot of proxy. So okay, so we you you were going through a list of the of the of the sort of B team yeah, guys yeah, yeah. that I was speaking on. Uh India and Pakistan are competing for influence over Central Asia, and that's all been shaken up now because Afghanistan has 
fallen back into the Pakistani camp when it was kind of in the Indian camp. Um, and of course, China is fighting with all of its all of its neighbors, pretty much, except it's, uh, China's only friends are Myanmar and North Korea, and sometimes Russia, sometimes. Um, <laughs> everyone else is, is either scared of it or doesn't like it. Uh, right. Oh, also, Laos might also be a Chinese ally. I don't really know anything about Laos, so maybe maybe this. <laughs> yeah, Mongolia um, is sometimes kind of... Yeah, Mongolia prefers Russia, though, because right. Mongolia has had a much worse history being under Chinese domination than it has under Russian domination. Um, I mean... Oh, being one of those countries, hey? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the but tables the used to be was... turned, right? Remember Mongolia <laughs> yeah, conquered yeah. both Russia and China at one point. <laughs> yes, yes. <So>. The worm <laughs> does turn. Uh, so so let's, let's talk about just get one thing out of the way, and that is, uh, I think, the last thing to be said about the total shambles of the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, which we did a whole episode on. But um, after the... A terrorist attack by ISIS Khorasan Division, I think is their name, um, on American troops and refugees at the airport in Afghanistan as the Americans were pulling people out. Uh, the Biden administration said, no, you see, we're going to show how we're going to deal with counterterrorism in the future by doing a drone strike on a ISIS K commander, and so they claimed victory and they had killed someone in this drone strike who they said was a senior the leader. The top general called the drone strike righteous. Yes. And um, I think it was either yesterday or the day before, um, or it might have been on Friday, actually. The Pentagon said, <clears throat> um, yeah, about that, actually, uh, we, we've looked over it again, and we think we might have made a bit of an oopsie. And instead of killing an ISIS commander, we killed seven children. Ten people, seven children, and zero ISIS. Yeah, so one of the reasons why people were saying that the Americans should stay in Afghanistan is because um, it allowed them to do on-the-ground intelligence. Either the Afghan government would give them intelligence about what was going on, which would make their drone strikes far more accurate, or they'd be able to send out special forces scouts to like check out the environment and see, okay, that's an Al-Qaeda camp over there, that's a Taliban camp there, that's an ISIS camp there and uh, feed that information back to the Air Force, which then would do more accurate drone strikes. And with the withdrawal, they no longer could do that. So uh, they took a shot in the dark, apparently, and they ended up killing a bunch of children. And it's actually, yeah. you know, not that common that, I mean, sometimes American drone strikes have killed uh, civilians and completely missed terrorist targets before. I know that there was a drone strike in Yemen, I think it was a year or two ago, which, which killed... I think it hit a wedding. Um, and there have been a couple as well in Pakistan that have uh, by accident hit civilians. Um, but generally speaking, they are—they have tended to be more accurate than not. Um, as we remember, of course, the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani was killed by an American drone strike, which was incredibly pinpoint, yeah. pinpoint decisive. I think it blew up basically two cars, and that was it. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's pretty terrible. I, I mean, I do think there is a, there is a mixed record in terms of on the ground performance as well. Um, I was this this weekend. I watched uh, a movie called The Battle of Haditha, uh, which I might as well sort of recommend halfway through the show here. Um, 
And this was uh, Haditha is a, a is a city in Iraq. I watched the movie because uh, one of my sort of uh, university buddies um, became a, a a war a war reporter in Syria, and uh, I remember him bringing. Well, at the time, I kind of just followed the Iraq and the Afghanistan war kind of more closely because I knew some people who were who were running over landmines and stuff like that. And I was very impressed. And it was an important kind of thing. Anyway, uh, the city of Haditha is in Iraq. It's on a dam, uh, famously described as the kind of place where people would go for their honeymoon. Uh, so you kind of need to explain that because Iraq is a, is a, is a pretty bleak desert. Um, but even there, there are kind of nicer places and less nice places. Um, Sometimes right. it's basically it's two nice rivers and then the rest is kind of bleak desert and horrid hills. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, sometimes when I'm feeling very ungenerous, the Northwest also makes me think of this way. Of being, they're beautiful the North, places in the, the Northwest. But. but the Northwest is the worst province. But that's it's, for another day. day. It's, yeah. Okay. So there, it does have the most oh, – anyway. So Khadida was like nice time besieged by the Americans. Their occupation was one of the least popular occupations there. Uh, sort of spot polls done by journalists seem to indicate 80% of Iraqis were totally against them being there years into the occupation, whereas in most of the place it was like 50-50 or something like that. And um, dudes were crazy. Soldiers were not being properly trained. They weren't properly disciplined. Sort of very macho and hanging their asses out of the Humvees. Uh, just not professional. And uh, they ended up killing sort of there were lots of the, the soldiers were at risk of being bombed while driving from what we would call landmines, but Americans called like uh, improvised, improvised devices, IEDs, IEDs, which are and, the way that most American soldiers have been killed in the last 10 years. Yeah. And there's kind of something ridiculously embarrassing about the fact that the American soldiers still drive around in Humvees that are flat bottomed. Uh, when the Nats, who, you know, had a terrible, terrible system, uh, also figured out that if you're going to do a lot of occupation patrol, you should have a V-shaped bottom Casper uh, because it's much harder to blow that thing up from underneath. It deflects the explosions, and that's why the Israelis well, use a V-shaped bottom and so on. It's funny, it's funny you say that. Where do you think South Africa sold most of its Caspers to in the last 20 years? Uh, who? The Iraqi government. <laughs> <laughs> They're that's one of the amazing. countries in the world, apart from South Africa, that operates the Casper. That's still that's buying from Danal. So anyway, um, I, I must on a on a very side note, there was a Casper uh, that was bought by an artist um, and beaded up, covered the whole Casper with beads. Took thousands and thousands of hours, and it is. So beautiful. It was an, it was exhibited at the Turbine Hall Art Fair a couple of years ago in Joburg and in Cape Town. Anyway, so, you know, terrible things can be recycled is the point, even from terrible regimes. Uh, Americans are instead driving around in Humvees. Car gets blown up. Soldier dies. Another two badly injured. And then the other American soldiers just go kill 20 people eventually, mostly children. But this is like breaking into people's houses and just spraying bullets at everyone. Um and it was investigated by the military, and there was lots of independent reports. At the time, I remember 
reading into it quite deeply. And it just did seem like on, in part, it seemed like Israeli propaganda. You know, American soldiers are urinating on Iraqi prisoners of war and they're shooting children. And look at this little girl with one eyeball who's the only survivor in her family, her granny and her five brothers and sisters were all killed. This sounds too terrible to be true. Um, but I don't know. As far as the investigations go, as far as my reading goes, it was all true. So sometimes ground action was terrible. The flip side of it is that the Americans had seemed to be learning. They do seem to have learned. You know, if you look at combatant deaths, if you look at U.S. soldier deaths, if you look at the sort of relevant civilian deaths, they do seem to have learned some lessons in the occupation. And now they're playing a different ball game, and it started just about as badly as it possible good, as it possibly good, with effectively, you know, in some sense, the murder, certainly the negligent killing of seven children. So this is very bleak, and and I, and I suppose we've we've gone into this um, in some detail to to caution against. You know, how does one react to that? Well, one response is, you see, this vindicates it. This shows that Biden was right, that Trump was right, that America's got to get out of there because it actually doesn't know what it's doing. And the only problem is that it's still there with its drones. It really needs to get out of there all of the way and just let Iraq be run by Iraqis. Um, oh, and that's an fun. interesting idea. And I think very smart people kind of think that way. Um, uh and and I also think it's wrong. Uh, I think that's the wrong lesson to learn from this. Um, and I and I do worry that this sets a kind of precedent for worst. Although come. I will say the last two three months have, shall we say, quite strengthened the argument that the Americans don't really know what they're doing. Um, exactly, there is there is a expertise gap. There's a knowledge gap yeah. in the American elite that is shocking. Incredible, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so there's that. Uh, let us talk. Oh, just on a side note, I went to look it up, and there doesn't seem to be figures easily accessible online as to how many Iraq operates of the Casper. Um, but it, the Indian Army actually uses almost as many as the South African Army. Yes, I was going to say that I, <laughs> I know it's not the only only, and the Americans yeah. use sixty-eight of them, which. It's much fewer than South Africa, but they do have a couple kicking around, which is quite interesting. Yeah, okay, but as a segue, in terms of military vehicles, uh, fun fact, um, the Taliban now has more armored personnel carriers than most other armies, <laughs> yes. including, <laughs> for sure, Australia, and I think also including France. Right, and uh, unlike... Which yeah, unlike which brings us to <laughs> yeah. So um, those who are following the news closely may know that uh, the the Australians, the British, and the Americans decided to do a special deal where they were going to sell the Australians a bunch of nuclear subs. So these subs are not armed with nuclear weapons; they're just powered by nuclear reactors. So they have these quite small very high-powered nuclear reactors are loaded into the submarine, and then this means that basically the submarine doesn't run out of fuel for literally years, um, unlike a, a diesel sub where you, know, you have to refill every couple of weeks or months or something. Yeah, um, and to clarify so, something that we said on the Daily Friends show, so so generally, you know, on a, 
on a very relaxed schedule. They might dock every two months um, to keep lots of fresh food going through the sailors' bellies. Um, right, and, and get them off, out of the thing so they don't go crazy, <laughs> which yeah. is another thing. They can easily go six months. Um, and in yeah. intense combat situations, they will need to collect stock every six months, but they don't necessarily need to go to harbor. So a little yeah. bit like how airplanes can they refuel can, can in the air. From a, right, they can from a ship it. or something. Yeah. yeah. So these submarines, basically, you can just send them out of the ocean. No one can have any idea where they are, and they can just sit around lurking, watching, spying, and possibly waiting in ambush for other ships. So they are very, very scary to a country with um, with a lot of warships uh, that that might yeah. be vulnerable to attack. It puts like a question mark behind every asset you have on the on the on the ocean top. Exactly. Um, particularly if you were a country, for example, like the People's Republic of China, and you wanted to invade another country, for example, uh, the Republic of China, aka Taiwan, uh, having a bunch of nuclear-powered Australian subs sitting in the channel between those two might make that whole proposition quite a lot more dicey. Yeah. Um, so that's why so, the move kind of makes sense. But right. the big news story of the week is that France is very upset about this this yes. new so, alliance between the UK and the US and Australia. So our, France had a pre-existing arms deal with, uh, with with Australia where they were selling them these quite high-tech but like expensive subs that they had to Diesel. drive all the way back. Yeah, they had to drive yeah. them all the way back to France to be like outfitted or repaired or, or pick them up and things like that. Um, I mean, they, you know, so the, it was a bit of a, a bit of a schlep um, the French have a pretty good arms industry and are quite uh, aggressive in pushing for it. Um, Dude, and just remember that to... we should know this as South Africans because we bought a French submarine that was docked yes. in Simonstown. And... Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Jacob Zuma is, is facing corruption charges related to a deal with an arms company from which country, Gabriel? <laughs> yeah, but and you remember that time... That that the submarine allegedly, I mean, this was, but anyway, it had a it had an incident where it was damaged and they needed to get repaired. Uh, and when asked what the cause of the damage was, um, one of the relevant parties said that uh, it misidentified a shark in the <laughs> off the coast, and so uh, uh, began evasive maneuvers. And so grazed the bottom against uh, a rock while it was trying to flee the shark. Uh, you know, <laughs> and you so know, it scratched just, the bottom and had to go get it fixed. And it is very I can't expensive. Remember, I can't remember which minister it was. It was either the minister of defense or the dep or the deputy minister of defense or communications or something. Can't remember who it was. A couple of years ago, it said that we needed submarines to protect South Africa from sharks. <laughs> Well, this is why. So it was around then, and then France told me the story about when. The... Anyway, <laughs> it's terrible. It's very terrible. It's, we we off we off dude. We have problems. That's all you can say. Yes. We've got problems. Australia also has problems. Not the same yes, Australia, problems. Australia. Australia is very worried about China's growing naval and military power in uh, in the, in East Asia to the extent that they've been willing to, uh, you know jeopardized their extensive trade relations with China um, in order to to kind of bolster their defense against the Chinese Navy, um, which is exactly what this was. And China was very upset about this deal. Not as upset as the French, apparently, though, because France withdrew its ambassador from the United States in protest over this, saying that they and had from been the, lied and to and they'd been... 
yeah, they'd been cut out of this deal, and it was the greatest betrayal in all of human history. Um, I, I'm exaggerating, but that was the gist of the sentiment. <laughs> but, but it is their, their withdrawal of their ambassadors to the US and to Australia. They haven't done anything like that since I, I read somewhere that they hadn't done anything like that since World War II. Yeah. So, I mean, China is the country that this arms deal was literally, you know, targeting. These subs are designed to shoot Chinese warships and they didn't withdraw their ambassador. <laughs> Yes, so the, the French have reacted more sternly than than the Chinese um, to the Australians cancelling the diesel submarine contract and taking up a nuclear submarine contract. So I don't know, Nick. Shall I? I mean, I think I know you think this is this is silly from the French, um, and I'm sorry to give your your game away. And I think I think many I people think will think it's silly. To this podcast will be surprised by this. <laughs> <laughs> but so, but so, let me briefly try and make the case for something that's interesting about France. Uh, France, since World War II, has been the most opposed in a way. It's been it's had a very confused and confusing uh, geopolitics. It's, can, I, can I just interject here? There's this kind of weird symmetry that emerged in the UN Security Council at the end of the Second World War, right? So the, it ended up being by the mid-70s that the five powers on the, on the Security Council were two communists, that being China and Russia, or the Soviet Union at that time, um, the United Kingdom, the US. And one of the reasons yeah. the Soviets were hesitant to join us in the beginning was because they said, oh, there's going to be three democracies and only two of us. Uh, you know, only two sort of non-first world uh, countries. And this upset them greatly um, until they realized that the French were a little bit of a wild card. <laughs> Certainly so a wild card. Ever since. Yes. Uh, and that France is never on anyone's team except France. And, and so I think that that is partly uh, an upshot, and many people believe this, um, many wise old analysts take the line that France has a very potent legacy, that it was the superpower of Europe um, 200 years ago. But it was a martial powerhouse that dominated all of its neighbors. Yeah. For a very um, long time. That this ends really in, uh, in the Franco-Prussian War. In, in the 1870s, 1879. And that it's not only dominant, it also has a kind of moral higher ground. It sort of makes this argument for uh, Republican democracy after the French Revolution. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> what I was, yeah. was going to say. Okay. Um, so, you know, France in, in the 19th century, sometimes it thinks it's the cleverest because it's a republic. Sometimes it thinks it's the cleverest because it experimented with this democracy thing and then reverted back to monarchism. And it was like, you know, only the, the truly wise uh, experiment in their youth uh, with debauchery, uh, but then grow into, into discipline and authoritarianism. Anyway, so it always had a story to tell about why it was the best. When it did lose its military power, it, rem it, it became culturally the most influential, I think, per capita kind of spot in the world. Uh, you know, Paris is the birthplace of, of so much of the art that influences Europe, Russia, China, Japan, America, and the, for sure. And the, 
the diplomatic language of Europe for a couple of centuries through Europe's heyday for a lot of it was French. Lingua franca, all of this kind of stuff. So France has this reason to think of itself. Uh, as an enormous amount of national self-confidence. Yes. Okay. So there are problems with that. Uh, the only people I've ever met when I was in America, the only people like New Yorkers would often say New York is kind of the best city in the world. And then you'd say, do you really think that? Have you been everywhere? They'd say, of course not. It's just the best place I've ever lived. But Parisians, and I met several, said, no, this is the best. Paris is the best city in the world. But what about the place you haven't been? Of course, I have not been everywhere, but I know Paris is simply the best city in the world. Are you joking? Why would I joke about such a thing? Of course, there are some things that are better than other things. And Paris is simply the best in the world. If you do not accept this, I suggest that you 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 go you undertake some psychological analysis. You are oppressed, and so on. Anyway, this was told to me unironically several times. That's one of the problems. One of the good things is that France has a very serious and I think quite healthy track record of of arguing that we must be in one of two worlds. Either America gets to be the world's sheriff, but that takes place under an international system of rules and regulations that really do function court-like and law-like, uh, and proper international bodies can be depended upon to stop and check it when that's appropriate. Uh, or if America is not going to play by the rules, but it's going to be the most dominant power, then America must be checked. Uh, that you can't be in this world where America doesn't play by the rules, but it does get away with whatever it wants to do. And this is part of the reason that France thinks it's so important to build the EU. And amongst our colleagues, a lot of people are terrible EU skeptics and with so much good reason. But the you know, first argument for the EU is that it's to stop the Holocaust from happening again. And in a sense, its capital should be in Auschwitz, as, a Pulitzer, as Booker Prize winner said. But the second purpose of the EU in the Cold War, uh, from France's perspective, is to establish a power that can truly rival uh, the other superpowers. Um, and so check America in the event that America stops playing by the rules, which, I mean, we just talked about this drone strike. In the broader scheme of things, that tragedy... Um, might seem like a speck of dust, but if you add up all of the terrible mistakes that America's made, um, I think that one does see uh, the, the, some reason to be sympathetic to the French argument. And what, the Fr and what France kind of likes the least, in a way, is bilateral or trilateral agreements, partly because of the social sense <laughs> that, like, if you are having a party with three people, what about the fourth person? Why you're not doing this? Partly but largely and much more seriously because um, they are France was in a way the most let down by bilateral and trilateral agreements in the build-up to World War II. France had an agreement with Italy uh, that in the case of German military aggression, Italy and France would fight together against the Germans. France had kind of the closest relationships in the, in the 1930s with the USSR uh, obviously, the fascists in Italy and Germany were like, the USSR is terrible. They are terrible. And France was like, no, we can kind of work with them. 
and Leon Blum was a, the socialist leader of France when World War II starts. You know, they, they had some very simpatico ideas. Um, the French ultra-left was very strong. I, so they had no, they have. had the makings of of deals um, with the U, with the USSR to halt German expansionary aggression. They had uh, wonderful agreements with uh, the United Kingdom, um, and the UK does of course intervene in Poland. Uh, the UK and France should have stepped in earlier, and France has a lot to answer for. Uh, yeah, for so, not, so uh, intervening can, in the Land and the Rhineland. So I'm not trying to say that France was an innocent victim, but it had. <laughs> Agreements with USSR, UK, Italy, um, uh, all of the major powers involved. And all of those agreements, to a very significant extent, were broken. To such an extent that Paris was taken um, long before uh, there was any real pushback against the Nazis. Or any pushback that had a hope of really, of really holding them back. So France has drawn a lesson, a deep lesson, as deep in a sense as the lesson that it drew from being so dominant. It's drawn a lesson that these bilateral, trilateral treaties aren't to be trusted, that what is to be trusted is uh, a permanent thing like the UN, where amazingly it has a, a permanent seat, even though it's like quite small in a lot of ways, and the EU, uh, where um, it has, uh, you know, this is a permanent club. This is not just a bilateral or trilateral treaty. And, of course, uh, Francophone Afrique and beyond, where France plays sort of colonial mothership, um, Perhaps benevolently, yes. perhaps uh, uh, yeah. I think I, I think benevolently and malevolently, in sort of fairly equal measure. Um, can I give a slightly alternative? So I guess yeah, that's no. The so that's yeah, the more and I'm not saying that's all right, thing. but yeah, yeah. Um, so I think the problem with the French is that they have this desire, even though they are a free country and they are part of the free world in a very real way, they have this desire to kind of stick to real the sort of realist school of the 1900s uh, sorry the the 1800s very uh, uh very strictly right they they always are very much french interests above all else even if this means uh, damage to their sort of ideological bedfellows and in a world i think where while of course you know realist geopolitical concerns are still very much a very real thing you can take it too far and this is a good example of that uh, this this deal with the australians um, the fact that they're so upset um, because they're going to lose out on revenue here. But as for that Second World War history, I mean, the French played a, and, and you did uh, you did say this, but I just want to emphasize the point that French did really play a very unhelpful role in the lead up to Hugely the Second unhelpful. World War. Hugely unhelpful. One of the reasons that Poland collapses so quickly, it's not just because the Polish army is outmatched by the Germans, they are. Um, but they aren't able to mobilize their army because the French tell them, no, no, you're not allowed to mobilize, even though the German troops are all on your border, because that might provoke the Germans. So yeah, even no. right up to the end of, of, of the Second World War, the, the French kind of don't really push the Belgians that hard, and so they can't send troops into Belgium until the Germans invade. Uh, the French, of course, you know, at the point I'm trying to make about realism and ideology, the French were pursuing a sort of slightly realist vision, but I guess also a sort of an ideological one, right? Because the socialists were in power in France. Are saying, no, no, we can be nice to the Soviets and get them to contain uh, Germany, just like in the good old days, right? Because the geopolitics they thought, I think, was, was similar, right? The, the, the Germans were the threat and the Russians will ally with us as they did in World War I. And it came yeah. back to bite them because Stalin realized that he could make 
lots of great deals with Hitler, although they didn't turn out to be such great deals, um, in, in exchange for, for, for siding with the Germans. And the entire French war plan was built on this idea that you know Germany would would be blocked by Russia from the other side. And when it didn't happen, uh, they found themselves in a really sticky situation. And the last thing I want to say is the French, that French self-confidence, that incredible pride um, really hurt them in the Second World War. And I think in part led to their, uh, the, 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 the bitterness that they would later feel, um, which is that right as France was collapsing, right, the British came to them and said, what if to prevent your government sort of falling over, we form a British and French union. So we will temporarily unite our two countries together. The French government will be able to operate entirely from uh, London and the French Navy will, will still remain under your control, but you'll, you know, you won't drop out of the war basically. And the French uh, president and the queen will share control of, or they will both be the head of state, right? The English, the British queen. And the French said, no. Um, and in, as a direct result of that, to prevent the French Navy falling into German hands, the British they attacked the French Navy. Yeah. Well, they attacked it at, at, at rest in a surprise attack in something the French are still bitter about. Um, and they killed quite a few French sailors because the British basically sank their Navy and stabbed them in the back. Uh, from their To stop the Nazis from taking it as, for example, right, Taliban because, did. Because the, the, you don't want to hand over exactly. assets material. The, the, the British Navy said to the French Navy, come to Britain and continue the fight from there. And the, and the French Navy said, no, 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 no. We're not going to listen to you. We we listened to our government, which at this stage had just turned into the collaborationist Vichy government. Um, yeah, look, there's lots of problems that France had at the time. Also, I mean, there was quite no, a lot no, of anti-Semitism around. Yeah. And so, like, it wasn't always so easy to go against Hitler. Um, yeah, yeah, France was a very divided country. I'm not saying a that lot they of had an easy an easy hand to play and of course it was the, the the collapse of france was ultimately because the french generals were terrible and that people like de gaulle were not very high ranked <laughs> if de gaulle yes. were leading the french maybe they would have beaten the germans in 1941 rather than you know 1945 but yeah. i think i think the french okay but nicholas to push hold on let me just yes. finish the French Sorry, desire ahead. to push back against the Anglo world is born of the fact that they have this self-confidence and yet in the Second World War, it was brought low, right? For the first time in, in French history, at least since like sort of the Franco-Prussian War, France was really humiliated in an awful, awful way. And they oh, been desperate I, I, I to claw back their, uh, prestige. Their, their place in the world. Yeah, yeah. so I, I, I'll add that France was humiliated in World War One. Um, not not a to the same way, because at least you know they no, were conquered. But in the they, in the in the hearts and minds of most people, uh, right. the lesson from World War One was that this whole war thing is very terrible. You produce a lost generation of existential, right. which is why list, they behaved list, list. so in such a silly way in the lead up to the Second World War. Correct, um, and the and the and the bitterness of the Treaty of Versailles, making the Germans sign on the most clear prestige nightmare in the history of the world, in a way, is the French insisting on the Germans taking all of the blame. Like, this is just about words. This is not about bodies or bullets yeah. or food or money. It's just words. We want you to say it was all your fault, na 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 na, na so that we feel good and you feel crap. And, and, and that, was, that was a concession because the British and Americans had sort of prevented them getting their original way. You can go and look up online a, a map of Europe as the French wanted to do with it in about 1916. 
And basically, one of the things they wanted to do was destroy Germany completely. And this is where Nicholas completely agrees with France. Yeah, because I'm he thinks the French that... are stupid. <laughs> so I think so. I what I'm trying to say is, and that and that makes me very uncomfortable. There's something I've got a great affinity for Germany since I was there when I was 16. I kind of uh, it was the 2006 World Cup. There were sort of old Germans crying because they, for the first time, felt proud of their country ever in their lives because they always felt so humiliated. It had only unified in 1989, well, in the early 1990s. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you mean that unification? Yeah, yeah. The second yeah. unification. Yes. So, so there is. So Germany's. I don't know. I've got it in in a way. It, it makes me feel uncomfortable imagining uh, destroying, not allowing uh, uh, Germany to exist, and instead having lots and lots and lots of little uh, provinces, or lots of little countries well, that I think, are all kind I of think the size of Belgium. Also, because Belgium is four. Not that great. Um, Belgium's not that great. <laughs> <laughs> so I think sometimes, like, Germany's a federal country, it's quite large, but there's a lot of devolved powers. The point is the, that France often has ideas that are, like, kind of contrary to everyone else's, and it's worth taking them seriously. And as much as Nicholas has pushed back very well, the one point that he hasn't managed to address is the, is the American problem. America is the most powerful, most interesting uh country in the world it's the most economically dynamic it, pro it almost certainly has done the well, most to spread freedom can, can in I the last a, 200 years make, but it goes unchecked and america has been going insane in favor of the french on that last on that last point right in the first world war this is kind of what happens uh, uh the americans uh you know they're, they're important for for ending the war so decisively in favor of the allies rather than something that's more a, a more murky settlement. I, I, for my salt, still think the Allies would have won, but it was not a, yeah, it was not a it sure was thing. Very tight. The stormtroopers were yeah. making gains in the close to Paris. Spring offensive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they finally get very close again, as they had been in nineteen fourteen. So, yeah. so the Americans play this way outsized role in in the settlement of the First World War because they're the ones with the fresh reserve of men and the big guns and all the money and they've come Lots in right at the end so they're not they're not soldiers. exhausted yes like like everyone else is um, and woodrow wilson who is a malevolent menace upon american history and world history as far as <sighs> but we could fight about this another time i completely he... agree i just make me so embarrassed i used to be so fond as the as, oh, <laughs> princeton president anyway carry on one one does change one's mind now and then he, uh, yeah, so so he has all these grand plans for, you know, creating these sort of, I guess, kind of race-based democratic nation states all over yes, Europe. that's exactly what and, he wants. Right. And he draws all these lines and he helps to enforce this world. And then he kind of falls out of power uh, right at the end of the war uh, while they're doing the settlement. And in fact, his own government rejects the, the, the treaty, I believe. Uh, which yes. helped sign up. So the Americans yes. do this thing, which they kind of are famous for doing. They push their way in, they set the rules, they throw their weight around, and then rather than sticking around to take part in the world they've created, they go, oh, this is too complicated and difficult, and they go home. Um, <laughs> and that's exactly what happens. And so yep. from that perspective, I can understand why the French are perhaps a little bit skeptical of American power. <laughs> and 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 it's... It's, you know, I, I do like to think in eras in a sense, you know, we, we passed, we were born 
as the Cold War era ended uh, and we were in a new era called Pax Americana, you might as well call it that, because America, the world was unipolar. There was so clearly one nation that was way more dominant than all others in economic terms, in cultural influence terms, soft power terms, prestige terms, and in, in, uh, in military uh, capacity. And America made some bad boo-boos. It allowed the fiscal rape of Russia uh, which which meant that the Soviet Union, as it collapsed, um, became a kind of kleptocracy uh, rather than um, uh, uh, an example as Western Germany had been after World War II and other countries have been uh, that America has kind of defeated one way or another. Uh, of how to do of how to do a kind of free market constitutional democracy type thing. Right. Uh, so that was a bad boo-boo and it was basically, you know, just guys turning a blind eye while dudes are making a quick buck. Not kind of terrible in a way. All the dark money that it created keeps coming back to, to harm lots of things. But okay, maybe not the worst thing. And kind of you can imagine giving it a mulligan, right? Like first ball grace, as we used to say, as childhood the, cricket I, I would say they also, you know, the, the, the loss of the Vietnam War was like kind of almost set the template for how they would muck up things going forward yeah no so it did there, there was a there were they, they kind of left which was maybe the right thing to do but they definitely did it in the wrong way for the wrong reasons and yeah, with well, the wrong I attitude to the south vietnamese allies that they had it would be one right. thing to leave and be like we're so sorry we are betraying our allies because we're stingy and we just don't have the money or we're so sorry uh but we've become kind of pacifist instead they were like we're not really sorry you shouldn't be fighting against communism and for capitalism this is terrible uh this this was part of the cultural and, lesson that was learned they they also they also had this problem where they couldn't decide if the south vietnamese were a puppet government or an ally yes um so kennedy quite early on and this is the point that really destabilized south vietnam there's a military dictator in south vietnam and kennedy uh engineers i think it's kennedy yeah i think it's kennedy engineers his removal by a, a sort of coup um because you know he just doesn't like him he thinks that he's awful and also he kept producing embarrassing sound bites i think he said in the interview or something that he admired hitler something crazy like that anyway after they got rid of that dictator who was you know taking which on who, the side, by the way kennedy admired kennedy totally admired hitler yeah but kennedy uh, kennedy knew that you didn't say that to the 1960s <laughs> media um, <laughs> and he thought it in the uh, 1930s and he said it yeah, he in his diary and in his letters <laughs> Uh, but after after they get rid of this guy, uh, South Vietnam kind of is plagued by political infighting for <laughs> for the rest of its existence. Mm. And you know, later when they try to turn it kind of into an ally, well, they've already caused so much chaos that you know the project requires a lot more investment, and then they're just not willing to give that because the public's yeah. against the war. And yeah, yeah. so like I said, it's the, it's the blueprint for how to defeat America one which the Americans psychologically have not been able to reckon with yet. Okay, but so 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 here's the thing, right? So And the Pentagon Papers are a very important part of, of the disillusionment with trust in the American military. The American military says, we do this, we're going to win. Pentagon Papers reveal that they knew better than that, that they knew that they uh, it was going to be tougher than they were saying. Um, and that breaks the faith as well. That makes sort of uh, rational analytical arguments about like cost benefit, like, look, if we leave, it's going to be this bad and it's going to cost us this much in the long run in terms of 
blood and treasure and if we stay it does it is terrible but ultimately it's not as bad that kind of fancy pants clever argument doesn't wash once the credibility is being eroded what what i'm suggesting is that so if you just quickly run through so they learn the long wrong lessons from vietnam um they they screw up uh, the transition of the Soviet Union into those countries that su survive it or, or, or pick it up where the Soviet Union left off. Uh, they then get the, involved in the most heinous opportunistic ways in the Balkans. Uh, Clinton is basically ordering bombing attacks according to election timetables. Um, uh, that's, that's not good. And that's when France and France's line at the time is you know, one of the arguments that 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 uh, that France was making at the time, and I remember this because I was hanging out with French aristocrats, and they would sort of uh, have copies of Le Monde uh, lying around in their table, and I'd say, "What does that mean?" One of the arguments was like, "Look, we need the euro. We need uh, to really strengthen Europe uh, because America is Meshuggah. It's won the Cold War. It's now the only superpower there is, and it's not acting responsibly." What comes after that? Nine Eleven, and then America invades Afghanistan. Okay. I think that was the right thing to do. It kind of gives up on chasing down Osama bin Laden. I think that's weak source. Um, it gets confused about, uh, I think it sets its ambitions too high um, in Afghanistan. But but be that as it may, I think that it was just to invade Afghanistan, just to occupy Afghanistan, and just to, to try and um, uh, reduce the sort of uh, cancer clot throwing of, 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 of global terrorism that was coming out of the Taliban's occupied zones but then it evades iraq under false pretenses and and france is in a very strange position in the iraqi war you'll correct me if i'm wrong but what whereas the uk joins and and russia uh is is is, is very friendly with the us uh at the time france is like no 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 you guys can't do this uh this is this is not on you haven't gone through the un you haven't gone through nato um and this is an inappropriate way to to invade another country. You're 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 abrogating the rules of the road, the international norms that kind of hold uh, the whole system together. And part of that is Bretton Woods. Part of that is IMF, World Bank kind of um, standards about how trade deals can be struck so that you're not too punitive. Part of it is also about the rules of invasion and not invasion. And and this is probably the most obvious, in my opinion abrogate you know instance where america is acting crazy and is unchecked and there's nothing that anyone else can really do about it now america's left afghanistan in the worst possible way biden says they're going to leave iraq uh they can't possibly do it as badly as they've done it in afghanistan um <laughs> never say never but then again and so you know you've got to ask yourself how much time do we spend talking about american politics one of the reasons is that if they sneeze the rest of the world gets a cold okay that's literally true of wuhan but it's kind of always true of the us uh fiscally militarily and so on right just go look at the comment section on the daily friend where this is being posted and you will see people referencing things that to do with america making reference to arguments from the us it's it's not and that's even on articles and things that are not about uh America specifically, and this is true for literally every news site in the country. Yeah, find exactly the same thing. And I think what's unusual about you, okay, maybe not that. I think for journalists, um, we 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 are probably much more sympathetic to America than most South African journalists. I think that's yeah, fair to sure. say. 
Um, you and I both have a deep uh, personal affection for that country and its people for the most part. Yeah, correct. But I do think that unchecked power is inherently dangerous. And I get France's argument that uh, if you have that, that this is just another step in the direction of the US being the captain of one club and the only other captain is Beijing. Um, and that that's kind of the worst of all worlds. It would rather have um, international clubs that can be proper rule enforcers rather than uh, little alliances that are unreliable and that ultimately devolve the world back into real politic because there is no rule enforcement mechanism. Okay, so that all being said, I think, I don't know that I can support France's <laughs> decision to cancel a trade deal with well, Australia. Yeah, and so, so just as the sort of, small amount of pushback because um, I think you've, you've made a reasonable argument uh, uh, there but I, I think a small amount of pushback is that at least some of what the French are saying is simply cover for their uh, brutally realist French first nationalistic yeah. you, uh, you guys are cancelling our money You we were going to make 65 billion dollars right. we were going to be the even, captain of this little team even in the other, even in the other conflicts, oh, I, I suspect that the that the French, at least a little bit, were kind of uh, the stuff you other talked about, like the, the Iraq war and stuff. We were thinking, you know, if the Americans can ignore the UN, then they can ignore us because we're such an important part of the UN. Yes, so they're doing it yeah, really yeah. to protect their own interests. So yeah, you know, that's the that's the harsher interpretation. Anyway, yeah. um, should I don't know how much you know we've only got three minutes left of our supposedly an hour show. Ha ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh do we want to say i think let's Turkey? yeah let's just quickly say about it's Turkey. related yeah it's related yeah to it's France. so related France, yeah so turkey's been in an interesting position over the last couple of years um particularly under i can't remember how to pronounce his first name but erdogan yeah uh, i also don't know how to say his first name he's erdogan got a complicated is... turkish first name. Rish, anyway. i think it's a yeah. Rish, yep. something like that um, anyway, Turkey has been in this complicated position. So Turkey's economy has been growing pretty nicely. It's a country yeah. with a pretty big population. It sits on this incredibly important trade um, network, as Bottom it has for, yeah. for literally you know its entire existence. And the previous empires that occupy that space have sat on that, uh, the Bosphorus. Although I don't know what it's called these days, the, the Sea of Mamara. Anyway. Not particularly important. So it's it's got this interesting geostrategic position. It's a rising power in a lot of ways. But ever since Erdogan came into power, it's been playing a very funny diplomatic game. So Turkey was traditionally in favor of very much of secularism, anti-communist, and pro-NATO. Which, right? by the way, it gets the secularism directly from the French model. A yes. <laughs> hundred years ago... Uh, they're like, yeah. these guys have got it right. We're going to play their music at our military parades and we're going to be super secular like the French because that's how you deal with this Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, you know, Shiite, Sunni, all those problems. Just make it go. Okay, sorry, carry on. Right. So, so the Turks the Turks start to move away from some of these positions um, in under Erdogan, right? Um, particularly after there's a coup attempt against Erdogan. Uh, which Erdogan claims the Americans backed, but I don't really know how much evidence there is to support that. Um, they may have backed it in a sort of very loose rhetorical sense, but they certainly didn't 
I don't think back it with any kind of resources. Um, but that's neither here, here nor there. After that, they, they kind of start to play this game where they get to, they start intervening in all sorts of conflicts um, around the Middle East, around their area. So in Syria, um, the Americans really aren't sure who to support because Syrian civil war is so complicated, but they end up essentially backing the Islamist uh, rebels fighting Bashar al-Assad. Um, the Islamists tend to be Sunnis, who are the majority of, of Syria's population. And Bashar is he's an Alawite, which is sort of like a Shiite Muslim, but not quite. They're like their own thing. Um, it's really complicated to explain, but that's yeah, that's also neither here nor there. Uh, and they also get involved in Libya, where they start backing the internationally recognized government over the government that's based in Benghazi. Um, because Libya, of course, has a civil war when uh, Muhammad Gaddafi is thrown out. And the Islamists almost take over the country, but they're defeated by a coalition of, of uh, I wouldn't call them secular forces, but sort of more military-focused forces, which then end up being divided into a sort of a pro-Russian and a pro-Turkish camp. And so Turkey is involved there. Um, and in fact, the, the pro-Russian side, who are not entirely pro-Russian, they also have some association with the U.S., almost win that civil war in Libya, but then the Turks sent soldiers and intervened. Turkey also has been helping its ally, Azerbaijan, who are also a Turkic people. So they have a sort of cultural, political, pan-Turco relationship that goes back a long way. A kind to of race vibe, basically. Yeah, it's a kind of race vibe thing. Um, to fight their enemy, Armenia. They also, of course, have been... Yo, Armenia's with... never had it easy. Let me tell you. No, Armenia has had Armenia is one of the worst geopolitical positions, and it hasn't just been in the worst geopolitical position in the 20th century or the 21st century. It's been in the worst position for like a thousand years. The centuries. Longer, if you arguably. can name the century, yeah, I think it's been the worst in like, that century. It, it, it used to be a sort of buffer zone, kicking around place between Persia and ancient Rome. That's how long Armenia has been bullied by its neighbors for. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so Turkey. There's a story about Emperor Claudius trying to make friends with an Armenian king to get him to help uh, put down a rebellion sort of in kind of what we would now call Israel-Syria. Uh, and then it doesn't work out. And then the one king kills the other king and then the Armenians get betrayed and then they just get crushed again by the Romans. And then by it's it's just always been... Right. It's 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 just... It's a mess. It's a, it's a terrible part of the world. Um, and, and, the, and Turkey's... And, and that's kind of the most recent point, right? Of interest here. Right. And and the Turks have also been continuing to fight their enemies in the east who are Kurdish. Um, the Kurds have a very complicated situation where there's lots of different factions of Kurds. Um, they all agree they want their own state, but some of them are very, very old-fashioned Marxist, communist, Stalinist. Some of them are far more sort of nationalistic-y. Some of them are more keen on a kind of semi-secular democracy and the Turks don't distinguish. They just paint all of them as radical terrorists who need to be destroyed the same as ISIS. Yeah. Um, and we talked about this because because the Americans were allies to some of the Kurds and then Trump turned his back on them. And that yeah. was something yeah. that really irritated both of us. It was a terrible betrayal. And I think foreshadowed the betrayal of the Afghan allies that we've, that we've right. seen exactly. now. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so the recently, uh, Turkey seems to have been put... It also used to be allies with Israel. Right, it was the secular Muslim power that was allied with the Jewish state um, against the the less secular Arab powers. 
Um, and Turkey, you know, it's got, it also has a bit of a, it's got a similar to the French problem that has this vision of itself as, you know, it used to dominate the Middle East and it's since fallen low and it now wants to kind of reclaim its position of preeminence um, in the Middle East. Uh, but it's kind of been stretching itself, I think, a bit thin. So the Turks have managed to do a lot. They've actually got a pretty good army with pretty good NATO tech. Um, however, They've managed to isolate and, and annoy the Americans. Um, they, uh, Erdogan had a relatively close personal relationship with Trump, but the American government starting, I think, before the Trump administration has increasingly drifted away from Turkey um, and now views it far more, in a far more hostile light. And there's even some people who say that Turkey should be kicked out of NATO. Uh, Turkey has been reigniting conflicts with its neighbor, Greece, who it, who it hates. <laughs> the Turks and the Greeks hate each other in a way that few countries do. I mean, it is a very deep thing. Um, the Turks have been back in this group, this group called Hayat Tahir al-Sham, HTS, which are basically, I guess you could call them Al-Qaeda light in Syria. Um, and Turkey had been trying to get these guys to at least pretend to be moderates and not so keen on sort of being uh, like Al-Qaeda light. <laughs> And it hasn't really worked, um, partly because they broke out into massive celebrations upon the victory of the Taliban in, in, in Afghanistan. And now the, the uh, Syrian government under uh, Bashar al-Assad, backed by the Russians and the Iranians, has just launched an offensive. And uh, it's putting a lot of pressure on that group. Um, so Turkey looks like it might lose some of its foothold in Syria. Um, Turkey also alienated itself from the West by buying a Russian air defense system and then proceeded to shoot down a Russian plane and fight yeah. with the Russians in Syria. That was one of the weirdest Russia's, Yeah, Right. And fight with Russia's ally uh, in Libya and fight with the Russians' ally in Armenia. So they've really soured relations. And, and I think, just to dwell on that point briefly, um, Turkey and Russia, very similar countries. Technically, democracies easy to dismiss as not being democracies, but really they are democracies uh, that where the people have just generally elected someone that uh, Look, the I rest think, of the I world mostly is, doesn't think of as being particularly democratic. That, that means that their foreign policy in, in Turkey than in Russia. Um, uh, Erdogan, I, they, there's more like free media institutions, for example, uh, whereas Putin, I think, has a pretty strong grasp of a lot of Russian media, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I don't know. This is a relentless uh, kind of. I think. I think people have uh, something like that. Maybe true. Maybe it's not true. Uh, in any event, the point is that they that they are democracies, uh, but that they're considered autocracies because their their governments foreign policy because their governments have such a strong majority um, on the back of such a heavy handed kind of nationalism that they can do. Uh, a lot of militarily adventuristic stuff that in other countries, for example, America, you kind of do that kind of stuff and eventually you get punished uh, by the peaceniks and the people who care about human rights. Um, that is kind of, you know, you, it's just impossible to imagine either Turkey or Russia withdrawing from Afghanistan in the way that the Americans have for some kind of moral reason. Uh, yeah, nominally. They'd only, they'd, yeah, they'd only withdraw because it was too expensive. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. yeah. And they would say, this is terrible, we should be everywhere, but we're not there because we can't afford it, so we're coming back. Uh, 
And then like everyone else, they'd say, but this is actually, we're still there because, you know, we're everywhere. You know, then they talk a bunch of rubbish about how it defeats a victory. Anyway, the point is that um, in the mid in the mid 2000s, um, when The Economist, for example, was uh, um, had turned against Russia to a degree that I think um, was not warranted by the facts, an unfortunate exaggeration of the problems in Russia, uh, which are so great that you don't need to exaggerate them. Uh, one of the things that it really worried about was a Turco-Russo alliance. Um, in, in terms of where they lie on the map, you can see the logic for why they should work together. Russia's worry has always been that it doesn't have access to a warm ocean, ocean 24 seven. If it had a, a proper close best buddies relationship with Turkey, uh, then it would achieve that interest. Um, so it'd be really good for Russia for Turkey. It'd be really good, uh, because Russia is a nuclear power. Uh, sorry, because- there's, there's one more way that tensions are starting to rise between the two. So Turkey has this old agreement over that choke point we were talking about at the, where Istanbul is, um, yeah. that it signed back in like 19 something. Um, I think just after the foundation of Turkey and it says that you can't give tolls to ships passing yeah. through them. They've started to dig a canal around the other side of Istanbul, which will allow them, which will, they, they'll basically treat as the expressway and they will charge tolls for that one. And I think that the goal there is to slowly basically strangle out the, uh, 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 you know, give them a trigger finger on a gun pointed at the Russian's head. Yes. Um, yes. So they, they, so they could have been the closest of allies. Uh, they're both hard realists, not particularly moral in their foreign policy. They're both adventurous. Uh, they both have hyper I mean, the, the Turks leaders. bought oil from from ISIS, so they yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and yet they, you know, then the Turks, yeah, they bought <laughs> they bought weapons from the Russians and then shot Russian weaponry down. So I think that I think that's just a nice example of kind of the end of the line that we that one worries about with France. So France is in a kind of more civilized way, but that's partly because it's richer. And so it plays a different kind of game. When it's angry, it's like canceling a trade agreement. When Turkey's angry, it's it's buying yeah, oil. And, from and the peace sticks are stronger in France, I would say. Than in For sure. Turkey. But 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 what we're seeing is you know France punishing uh, allies uh, for what they think is bad behavior. Uh, and I think it's going to be fine. I think it's going to wash over. I think they'll teach the Australians a lesson. I think the Australians are going to be like, dude, if you really want us. Uh, you're going to have to give us nuclear submarine technology because that's really what right. we're looking for. Um, and then maybe they'll go back. Let's see if that happens. I doubt it'll happen. I, I see the but Australian Prime Minister, I think, while we were talking, basically just said, hey, we told you guys we had some problems with your submarine contract, and so you shouldn't be surprised. Yeah. So I think it's going to wash over. But you see the pattern, which is that if you do punish your allies one by one by one, if you act in a kind of arrogant fashion where maybe it's right. righteous, to use that American phrase, maybe it is kind of right case by case. If you don't do a little bit of what's ultimately an act of realism, friendship in the sense is pragmatic, right? It's not grounded in your best principles and morals. Uh, but a little bit of forgiving your friends and being like, okay, you've harmed our interests. We think you've been deceitful, but whatever. We're not going to make too much of a big deal out of it. If you don't do that now and again, you, you might find yourself in Turkey's position, which is like China's position in that it's kind of got hostile relations with all its neighbors. Yeah. It but really it's friends. in a much weaker position because um, yeah. it doesn't have the world's largest or second largest economy. Um, and insofar as its economy has been very strong, yeah, a lot of it. Problems. 
a lot of it has, yeah, it's been a strange kind of growth, a lot of construction growth, which leads us to the last point that we were going to discuss very briefly, which is I'm just going to touch on uh, watch out for the Chinese housing market and debt market. Uh, Evergrande, uh, a sort of a Chinese company that I think has about 1.92 million uh, home loans on its books. Not really that much. Um, I'm I'm speaking very much under correction. Uh, it it's it's lost 10% in its market share. Credit default swaps for Chinese sovereign loans and for some of these collateralized uh, mortgages are spiking. This is the kind of thing that um, happened before the U.S. fiscal financial crisis. Um, for my money, I'm, I don't think that's the same thing that's happening in China right now. Uh, it is worth considering that if China were to have a financial crisis, if its banking sector kind of failed because people had been uh, gambling uh, in the way that the Americans had, um, CEOs people, would definitely go to jail. Uh, some of them might be shot, but for sure some would go to jail. Um, that's interesting in part because the Supreme Court of the United States finally put the issue to bed of whether any Americans are going to go to jail uh, for the deception, for, for in particular Goldman Sachs versus the Arkansas Teachers Union or retirement system. That case was just completed recently. I listened to the Supreme Court argument last week. Uh, it was terribly boring. And my conclusion basically <laughs> is that um, you're very technical. Uh, why did no, no one in Goldman Sachs go to jail? It's because the law writes a kind of script for how you can defraud your own customers. And Goldman Sachs stuck very carefully to that script. Um, so I think the law's an ass and it's crazy that they haven't, haven't adjusted the law. I think it'll be terribly embarrassing if China does have a bit of a financial system wobble because they'll deal with it in a way that'll satisfy populists outside of China much more than America did. People will be like, look, you guys, um, you didn't let your banks, your big banks, your big lenders fail, big housing companies fail, but you did. You don't have to, you also have too big to fail. And we understand the logic of too big to fail. You've got to bail out. And that's what the Chinese will do. They'll print money. Maybe it creates a buy-in for Bitcoin. That's also why some people are excited about it because uh, Chinese people will then worry about inflation, whatever. Uh, let's see. But if they're in that position, they'll be like, there's no too big to jail. We put some CEOs behind bars. And the Bernie Sanderites, of which I kind of was, definitely was one, still am one to some extent, uh, in this regard, in the US, will be delighted. And they'll be like, this once again vindicates the Chinese system. So I kind of, on two levels, hope well, you know, that... The, um, the, the Bernie Sanders being in favor of a foreign authoritarian regime that oppresses its people is not new. <laughs> <laughs> this is a man who did uh, who did a holiday in the Soviet Union. Honeymoon the Soviet Union. Dude, a perfectly reasonable place to honeymoon. Yeah, while praising it. <laughs> In the 1980s, it was doing a lot of interesting things. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Let's not. Let's. <laughs> the, the gulag was closed. They closed the gulag. Not quite. Not quite. Like only later. But anyway, let's not get stuck on. You know, We're not going to get how, into that too much. How, no, you, I'm, how you are far too after the Soviets. It's <laughs> <laughs> half my family. <laughs> um, no, but but anyway, the point is. Um, yep. Just the last thing, last indicator for China is their their PMI, which is basically like um, a strong indicator of what inventories are doing and and what inventory managers are are, are thinking about an economy that's dropped uh, to like a negative indicator for the first time in quite a while in China. So China is this is just surprising. I thought that they were doing really well through the pandemic. Um, they are seeing some signs of weakness. 
Right. Who knows so, if they're uh, yeah? Who knows what that brings? So can I too, get my too brief, soon to read too much into it? But my brief spin on this. Um, so Gabriel knows an immense amount more about financial markets than I do. So take this from where it comes. But I wonder how much of this is China's sort of chickens coming up to roost. China struck this very uh, careful balance between keeping the authoritarianism but allowing some free markets. And it was a very difficult line to walk. And in my understanding, China has veered far more into the authoritarian route of late. Um, yeah. You've seen them arresting their CEOs and things. And that there's a possibility, and nowhere near a certainty, but a possibility, that what they are, what is going to happen here, because I think people have been warning about this debt bubble thing for a long time. Yes. Uh, in, in China, yeah. particularly around yeah. housing, because they have all these you know fancy projects that didn't have people in them. Um, that the Chinese might have screwed themselves <laughs> in a way similar to the West, but that they may reap a much worse harvest from it, even if they are, you know, arresting people and, and blaming someone for, for the disaster, that uh, their system might suffer a lot of damage from this. We'll have to see, obviously, and that would make the world a very complicated and messy place. But um, I wouldn't be surprised if China... If, if the China, you know, people talked about Japan in the 80s as being this inevitable superpower is going to overtake the US, and then it hit a bit of an oopsie doopsie in the 90s. And yeah. uh, I wonder if China might go the same route. It's like I said, nowhere near a certainty, but I think it's a possibility. Yeah. I, I mean, my sense, I think we've always agreed that something like that is, has got to be bound to happen as long right. as, long as human beings, um, keep being the kinds of things that there have been, but that it might only happen in after we die. Um, so well, we I, I've got to... It's going to happen. It's just going to happen at some point. <laughs> yeah. So if it is happening now, it's interesting. I feel um, very... Like, I haven't even presented the, the, the data that I've that I read briefly very well now. Um, I've been a little bit under the weather. Uh, but I, th I think this is something to to look at again. And hey, I mean, I think in two crickets we were talking about coronavirus in January 2020, uh, which was way before the cool kids were doing it. Uh, so if Nicholas is right, the, we'll be able to claim the, the prophecy business. <laughs> the prophecy business, you know. Well, just I mean, one of the good things about these really long episodes is that we throw so many darts at the board. Yeah, <laughs> we have exactly. to hit the bullseye but, now. But would it just be like the Americans? Uh, to to maintain their global hegemony just because the Chinese messed up, not because they were particularly good. <laughs> yes. No, I think that is. I think that is the the own goal. It turns out to be the the sort of decisive move of the twenty first century. Anyway. <laughs> but anyway, okay. Uh, we are late. Uh, long, long. So let's call it to a close. Any recommendations? Um, so I think Battle of Haditha is a it's a good movie. It's well sourced. Um, you can read some reportage in the New York Times and New Yorker. It covers that and the and the uh, Washington Post. I think when those papers were quite serious about doing good war reporting. Uh, if you're not into the movie, it's it's pretty grim. Uh, but if you want to get a vivid sense of the of of how wrong things can go at a very personal, you know, like this is not like a bomb dropping on a city that destroys the whole city. This is like face-to-face -face kind of uh, war gone wrong. I think it's an interesting, 
yeah. experience. Ill-disciplined soldiers are not never a good thing. No, you really want professionals. You don't want bloody teenagers. Um, I've got another recommendation, which is um, Goodbye Lenin. Uh, but I'm gonna, I'm just gonna put that one out there for people who know it, um, and I'm gonna talk about it another time. It is, it gutted me. It's so funny, and that's the first movie. Uh, in quite a while to just wreck my emotional equilibrium. So um, I'm because your 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 thing about in a good this, way, um, in a terrible this, terrible way. Sorry, this thing in, in Iraq it reminded me of a thing I had watched on Iraq as well a while ago. It was a Vice News video on YouTube. It's called "Fighting the Islamic State with Iraq's Golden Division: The Road to Fallujah." Now it's out of date because it was in 2014 and Iraq is in a much better place than it was then um, but it's just a it's it's it, it's a journalist who's traveling around with the Iraqi special forces um, fighting Isis in Mosul Mosul in, in northern Iraq and it just gives you a sense of how brutal and rough that war is but also that you know it isn't just the West that's fighting uh, groups like ISIS, you know, a lot of the at the end of the day, a lot of the fighting and dying yeah. is done on the ground by by people, by by locals. Just as in the Afghanistan war, most of the killing yeah. and dying in the last couple of years and overall yeah. has been done by Afghans. Yeah, you can see that in Iraq, a similar thing has been going on. Although uh, <laughs> the uh, the guy he's traveling with, the guys he's traveling with, I'm not sure. We say, let's just say that the the incidents like you talked about with that the Americans doing. That, that we would say is more the exception than the rule. Uh, in Iraq, these uh, these troops may may behave in the other way. Um, yeah. There's videos of them torturing ISIS, uh, suspected ISIS prisoners and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's a rough watch. Don't watch if you're squeamish or easily traumatized, but it is very insightful about how rough things are and also how modern war looks these days. Um, yeah. There's a scene in the, in the video where ISIS tries to kill the Iraqi commander there with... Uh, by flying a little drone and dropping a hand grenade on it. And yeah. it is remarkable, actually, how much drones have changed warfare. Yeah. Anyway. Sure. Cool. Uh, with that, we bid you adieu. Uh, we shall see you on the next episode and have a wonderful week. Keep the flag of liberty flying. Grr, 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 grr.